Deep dive into the world of science with Nature Plus. From the vastness of the distant star systems to the intricacies of infectious diseases due to climate change, we've got you covered. Enjoy access to over 55 cutting-edge journals, breaking scientific news, and over a 1,000 new articles every month. Whether you're a seasoned researcher or just curious, Nature Plus simplifies complex studies. Plus, it's all available right at your fingertips on nature.com. Nature Plus, the key to unlocking the world's most significant scientific advances. Subscribe today at go.nature.com slash plus. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. In an experiment. Why is light so far? Like, it sounds so simple. They had no idea. But now the data speaks. I find this not only refreshing, but, but at some level astounding. Welcome back to the Nature Podcast. This week, evidence of humans in the Americas 30,000 years ago. And exposing the flaws in the modern scientific method. I'm Sharmini Bundell. And I'm Nick Howe. As we mentioned last week, our pandemic spin-off podcast, Coronapod, is now part of this show. So if you just want to hear the latest coronavirus updates, then you can skip ahead to 10.59. Coming up first, though, I've been looking into some stone tools and new modelling analyses that suggest humans may have lived in the Americas thousands of years earlier than many people thought. Now, the subject of when humans first arrived in the Americas is a hot debate for archaeologists. Well, it's actually a a long debated topic as well. This is an issue that first arose in the Americas in the 1870s. This is David Meltzer, an archaeologist who investigates when humans arrived in the Americas. Over the past hundred years or so since, archaeologists have gone back and forth on when this might have happened. More recently, Thanks to additional archaeological and genomic evidence, researchers are starting to converge on a window for when humans first stepped foot on the Americas. What we have coming out of archaeology is a number of sites that are sort of in the 15,000 years ago range. And so that gives us a minimum age. We know that people were here by that date. The ancient genomics is pointing to a split between Northeast Asian populations and those groups that would come into the Americas happening around, oh, 23, 24,000 years ago. And that kind of gives us a maximum age. So somewhere between that 23, 24 and 15, it's probably the window within which we've got people leaving Northeast Asia, crossing the land bridge and coming into the Americas. Within this window, for many archaeologists, it's most likely that people entered the Americas around 16,000 years ago. This is due to the prevailing well-established archaeological evidence, which is also backed up by climatic conditions. Before this time, between 16,000 and 24,000 years ago, 
it would have been difficult for humans to migrate across the land bridge from Asia due to the presence of giant walls of ice in North America. This was a time period within the last ice age known as the last glacial maximum or LGM. If you get to Alaska during the last glacial maximum, you're in a cul-de-sac. And so you've got basically two massive ice sheets that are blocking your way south. But this week in Nature, there are two papers that push the date of human arrival back thousands of years before 16,000 years ago. One has examined a cave deep in the desert of Mexico, known as Chiquihuiti. The oldest dates we have are somewhere around 30,000 years ago. This is Cyprian Ardelian, the lead archaeologist examining the cave. 30,000 years ago would push back human arrival to well before the last glacial maximum, when ice blocked entry into North America. There were some clues that that cave had something in those layers belonging to the LGM that seemed to suggest humans. And I was very skeptical. But Chikiwiti Cave showed me that if you go deeper and deeper in your excavations without stopping when you hit the marker of the 14,000 or the 18,000, you may get lucky. You may get into something that's been invisible for quite a while. With evidence of humans during the last glacial maximum, Cyprian was encouraged to look beyond this barrier and dig deeper to older sediments. And by digging deeper, Cyprian found an array of unusual stone tools that he thinks were made by people that inhabited the cave. Flaked stone tools made of a very peculiar material, which is recrystallized green limestone. So they searched for this particular kind of stone around the cave and they consistently picked the greenish variety and used it to to make very weird-looking artifacts that are oddly shaped. So it's not the typical flint or the obsidian you would find in many places during the Paleolithic. Now, this isn't the first evidence that has suggested that humans have been in the Americas this early. There are other sites where there have been claims of human occupation more than 20,000 years ago, but these have been disputed by some archaeologists. Also, there are comparatively few sites of this age in the US or Canada so far. If we assume that people initially crossed into Alaska across the land bridge known as Beringia and then migrated south, we'd expect to find more traces of them. Well, that's where the second paper in Nature this week comes in. It's authored by one of the researchers who's been investigating Chiquiwiti, Lorena Becerra Valdivia. So we were looking at archaeological and chronometric, so that's essentially radiocarbon dates, luminescence dates, from 42 archaeological sites from North America and Beringia. By collecting and analysing archaeological evidence and the associated dates, Lorena and her co-author were able to build a model of human dispersal as populations fanned out from Alaska across North America. Whilst this model doesn't find new dates for artefacts, it uses known dates to suggest when people would have first reached the different sites across North America. We were able to see that humans were present in North America before, during and after the last glacial maximum, but that human expansion didn't actually occur until a lot later during a period of abrupt sort of global warming. 
This idea that human populations were low during the last glacial maximum and then rapidly expanded once things got warmer is also backed up by Cyprian's archaeological evidence from the cave in Mexico. As soon as you reach the layers in the deposits of the cave that date to about 18, 16,000 years ago, the number of artifacts just triplicates in number. Cyprian also thinks this could help explain why there is so little evidence of humans during or before the last glacial maximum. It's almost impossible to find them. I mean, you have such a huge chunk of our planet with just a few footsteps on it. That's, that's how the LGM looked like. I mean, you can barely call it a populated continent. But do these papers roll back the date on when humans were present in the Americas? Well, it may be too early to tell. For David Meltzer, who you heard from earlier and who wasn't involved in this research, when it comes to the cave, he thinks there are still questions to be asked about the tools that were found. Based on the radiocarbon dates that they have, and I think the radiocarbon dates look awfully solid, it appears as though this technology lasted for minimally, according to the dates, around 16,000 years. With a stone tool tradition, that long lasting, one would expect it to have been far more widespread in the region instead of being localized to this this one cave. David acknowledges that perhaps archaeologists just haven't found other stone tools like this, and that could account for why they don't appear to be widespread. He did have questions as well regarding why the stone tools don't appear to have changed over the 16,000 year period that they were found. For him, this is quite strange. Cyprian, however, argues that maybe that isn't so unusual. If you look at other places in the world during the Ice Age, the stone technologies did remain the same for many thousands of years without significant changes. So that's, that's what happens at Chiquiwiti. It's, it behaves more like stone tool industries in the old world, where they remain unchanged for thousands of years. For the second modelling paper... David thought that Lorena's analysis was sound, but he did have some questions regarding some of the sites that were included in the analysis. In some cases, the sites themselves, the data is highly ambiguous. So you've got a well-dated site, but the artifacts or the indications of a human presence may just be shattered bone or cut mark bone. And those of us that do field work, that deal with this kind of thing, know that there are a lot of natural processes that can mimic human actions on bone or stone. The debate surrounding when humans first came to the Americas is far from solved. These new papers add evidence to it, but in many ways they raise a lot of questions as well. Perhaps though they will inspire archaeologists to dig deeper to find the first Americans. At the moment, subject to change, if you look at the sort of converging genomic and archaeological evidence, it looks as though people are coming in soon after the last glacial maximum. So 16, 15 and a half thousand years ago, could they have been there earlier? Absolutely. But if you're going to make the argument, it's going to require you know, a well laid out case. That was David Meltzer from Southern Methodist University in the U.S., You also heard from Cyprian Ardelian from the University of Zacatecas in Mexico and Lorena Basara Valdivia from the University of Oxford here in the UK and the University of New South Wales in Australia. We'll put a link to the papers discussed in the show notes. 
Next up, Benjamin Thompson, Noah Baker and Amy Maxman are here to give us the latest coronavirus updates in this week's Coronapod. In the past, we've kept the podcast a coronavirus-free zone, so if you'd rather not hear this segment, you can skip ahead to 2425. Yes, thanks, Nick. So here we are again for Coronapod, and once again, I'm joined on the line by Noah Baker and Amy Maxman. Hi, both. How are you doing today? I'm good. Yeah, I'm not bad, thank you. We've got a couple of stories to cover today. The first one I thought we'd go for, well, there's been a lot of interest this week in vaccines, and there's been a mountain of data that's been released in the past couple of days, really, about efficacy trials. Yeah, so this is something that we talked about on Coronapod back in May, where we discussed some of the vaccine trials um, that are going on. um, And now there has been these big releases that have happened in the past sort of eight days. So one is from Moderna, which is working with the National Institutes of Allergy and Infectious Disease, NIAID, I think, in the States is how you pronounce it. Another is from a group here in the UK, which is um, from the University of Oxford. They're working with AstraZeneca. And then there's another being released from Pfizer, which is a US organisation that's working with a German biotech company. And those three results have all come out and they're all quite positive. They're suggesting that to different degrees and in different ways, there is an immune response to their vaccines in their stage two trials. Now, we kind of knew that this was sort of coming um, from Moderna, for example. This was press released some time ago, but now we've actually got data to look at. And that data always makes scientists happy. And it's enough, certainly in two cases, to move on to phase three trials. The Oxford group have already started their phase three trial. And Moderna, that group, are going to be starting their phase three trial very soon. So all kind of exciting because it means things are moving, and it means things are moving very fast. But what it definitely doesn't mean is that we have an effective vaccine around the corner. You know, this is just the next necessary step. Yeah, and there's actually a a fourth group too, the Can Sino Biologics Group in China, who've released some data, and uh, and they're talking about doing a phase three trial as well. So I think the prevailing thoughts here are that, you know, things are moving in the right direction, but clearly a long way to go just yet. And, uh, and I guess it's difficult to compare and contrast these vaccine trials and say which one is maybe the front runner, because it's a bit like apples and oranges in terms of their methods and their kind of analysis and what have you. For the phase three trial, that's where we're trying to see efficacy. I think ideally there you have a place where there's a lot of active transmission so that you could get a sense of is this really protecting people? Is there any thoughts about the design of those trials? Because the hotspots also move, so it's super tricky. Do you know anything about that? Yeah, so that's one thing that is definitely a problem that has been facing people doing these trials, is how do you try to do a phase three trial in a country that has all these sort of really, really extreme measures in place to prevent transmission? Because you sort of need there to be some natural transmission to be able to determine efficacy. And so the Oxford group, they're running their phase three trial in South Africa and in Brazil. So they've deliberately chosen countries where there is a high transmission rate in order to run that trial. Whether or not that continues in the long term to be a place where there continues to be high transmission, I don't know the answer to that. And I suspect they don't either. But I suppose they have to choose somewhere and then run with it. Such a weird thing about vaccine trials for infectious diseases is in some sort of sick way you do better if the outbreak's worse. Yeah, here in the UK, I think they have struggled to get people. I know they want to expand the range out to different ages, but you're right. All these lockdown measures that we have obviously encountered ourselves over the past few months in a, in a perverse way are actually hindering potentially this particular vaccine being developed. Although we do have a sort of a strong note of caution that I think all of us are mentioning here because this, you know, this isn't a done deal yet. This is kind of incredibly fast. This is kind of unprecedented speed at which vaccines are being developed right now. And I think the US group that's looking into this is called Project Warp Speed. 
And that's exactly the reason <laughs> is that this is very, very fast work that they're doing. I think another thing that's probably worth mentioning, though, is that when people hear vaccine, I think that they immediately will jump to protection. You know, if I've got a vaccine, I'm immunized. But that's not really how all vaccines work. And as of yet, we don't know if that's exactly how any of these will work. It might just mean that you have a temporary protection. It might just mean that you can still be infected, but you just won't get a severe disease, for example. So it will reduce the severity of that disease. The Oxford trial, early studies that they did in monkeys showed that their vaccine did reduce pneumonia, but it didn't reduce the load of virus in the nose of those monkeys. So that kind of suggested that maybe they weren't getting really ill, but they were still able to pass that virus on. And so there's kind of still a lot of open questions about how any of these vaccines work, if indeed they do work. Yeah, I'm going to throw another spanner into the works as well, potentially. I mean, just over the last couple of days, a, a preprint paper came out, so not peer-reviewed, that suggests that, uh, that levels of these neutralizing antibodies drop off a cliff a few months after someone's been infected with the virus. So what that means for a, sort of the efficacy of a, of a vaccine long term, does it mean booster shots and, and what have you, still remains to be seen yet again. The FDA also announced, I think it was a few weeks ago, that they'll accept rates as low as 50% efficacy. So they're not saying it's going to be great necessarily. Yeah, I guess when you think about it, 50% efficacy doesn't sound great. But if you put it in the context of versus nothing, yeah, it's pretty darn good, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) It might be worth mentioning as well that just getting a vaccine that works from sort of a biological perspective, a pharmacological perspective is only part of the battle. The next part of the battle is also to produce it on a big enough scale and to get it to the right places at the right price. Now, those are big steps. And there are moves towards trying to do that. That's why the Oxford Group are partnering with AstraZeneca. And and AstraZeneca have already said that they're expecting to make 2 billion doses of this and do it at cost. So they're doing it in a not-for-profit manner. And the same is true of an Indian pharma company, which is intending to produce 1 billion doses of this vaccine, but specifically for low and middle income people, so priced at a lower level. But additionally, it's not just a case of pharma companies committing to make loads of it. They also need kind of orders in place in order to be able to justify that cost. And so countries in the EU have already ordered something in the region of 400 million doses from AstraZeneca of the Oxford vaccine. But at the moment, it's all kind of a bit of we bet on the best data we have because we still don't know if it's going to work. Yeah, the UK is, uh, is backing quite a few horses, as I understand, and provisionally ordering doses from a bunch of different companies. And it's also worth saying that, you know, there's almost certainly not going to be one winner to this race. The likelihood is there will be a range of vaccines and a range of different approaches. And that's not only going to be useful because they may all have different positives and negatives, but it's also going to be potentially necessary because if you want to get enough vaccine to enough people, you need enough people working on it. And that might mean more biotech companies or more groups that can work on it in order to be able to get it out and get it to to, to distribute it at the right places. Well, let's move on to our second story in this CoronaPod, then both. And it's about data collection. Uh, What's the story here, Amy? So the news that I think shook epidemiologists and public health researchers last week was an announcement that Health and Human Services, the U.S. agency, has decided they're going to make a new data management system for COVID where hospitals can report directly to them versus to the state health departments or the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. So... The CDC is a group that sits within HHS, but HHS is large and there's like political appointees in charge of it. You know, for example, the head of HHS, he's not coming from a science background. And the CDC is an agency that was set up for public health. Their duty is surveillance and collecting data from public health departments who they work really closely with. So anyways, 
this was really upsetting to a lot of people. Well, that's the setup then. I mean, what's the issue then with, with changing this to such a way? I don't think there's huge disagreement that we needed better data management because it was actually pretty disorganized and incomplete. But people were really upset for a few reasons. One is to switch to an entirely new system of reporting without any kind of leeway time for hospitals in the middle of a pandemic was really jarring for people. One other concern is, so it's one thing to say, data management needs to be updated. We do need new systems. Hey, even if you're gonna bring in private companies, that's fine, but why not do it within CDC? This is the agency that manages this sort of stuff. So why not modernize their system? So nobody that I know has been able to give a good explanation for why HHS should be doing this and not the CDC. That is what I really wanna ask about. This is the CDC's job, right? If there's a specialism the CDC has, it's how to do this. And like there may be all kinds of problems with the systems they've got and they may not have been funded properly in the past or whatever it is, but it seems like a very strange idea to take this thing that the CDC is the specialist part of government to do and give it to someone else, which, and it's not their specialism. Why? And there's not really a good answer for that. And that's where people get really worried because of the history of what's been going on with this pandemic and with this administration. There's a lot of signs that the Trump administration has been really pushing its own narrative above scientific advice. So this is why people are really worried, because if the people holding the data might be um, persuaded by politics, while they're analyzing data, that could get really scary. And right now, we really don't know how transparent the system is. Now, HHS has said they're going to be very transparent. They have a new dashboard that's up where you can see percent capacity full at hospitals, but that leaves out a lot of information. And it's kind of high-level data analysis. It's not the granular level. So they say they're also going to be open with the CDC. So they have tried to reassure the public that through press briefings. But it really remains to be seen. And a lot of people are, are really skeptical at this point. What has the response from people in the CDC or epidemiologists in the CDC been to this? Like, are they outraged that they're having this important sort of role taken away from them, which has historically been their role? Like, I can imagine I'd be a bit peeved if I was world renowned for doing this. And then someone said, nah, someone else can do it. You know, this is the state of affairs in America that I can't tell you because try as I might to get CDC people and HHS people on the phone with me those requests don't go through. And it's been like that. So they can't tell me on the record how they feel about this, which is also I find very upsetting. But I did speak, you know, for a, a piece I'm working on, I spoke with a lot of people who used to be at the CDC, or who were former directors of the CDC. I talked with one of them, and he told me this was completely unprecedented in his, you know, 30 years of public health. So I think people who talk with people on the inside, tell me that they're surprised and upset about it. But I haven't heard that on the record from anybody within the agency. When might any issues with this transfer then become apparent, do you think, Amy? I suppose we'll know in the next like couple of weeks. You know, to be fair, I want to give this the benefit of the doubt a little bit. Maybe I'll be wrong and it will actually be a really great system. So that's not impossible. I haven't seen that it's manipulated right now. I mean, the day after this happened, there was a big news flash when the CDC took down their data dashboard page. But from what I can tell, that seems to be an error on the part of someone. What it does reflect is the confusion right now, which is big. Nobody I know can really figure out exactly what's going on. So, you know, maybe it's natural there's confusion right now. But I suppose, you know, you would expect in a couple of weeks, we'd be getting good data out of this. And if not, we'll start to know. I think as well, it's probably worth 
you know, mentioning that we have on Coronapod, and it has been talked about in Nature's Pages as well, you know, the CDC hasn't been playing a great game in this pandemic so far, and we do regularly criticise that we don't have good enough data. And so, you know, in many ways, sort of going, well, the CDC haven't been doing a great job, let's do something radical to get better data, even if it's in the midst of a pandemic, and that isn't necessarily the best way to do it, if it means we get better data, and if there's political will behind it, in many ways, we might go, tick, they've done things that we would, you know, approve of as an organisation. The question is whether or not that is the reason that this has actually been done and whether or not this change is actually going to work, basically. Yeah, like I said, it goes back to what's the long game here? I mean, if there was a big overhaul of the data management system within CDC, that's great for a lot of reasons because this is going to be the agency that's going to continue to monitor this outbreak. This is going to go on for years, perhaps, you know, so it's going to be the one that's going to continue to monitor this along with all sorts of other things that they collect data for already, like, you know, hospital acquired infections and antibiotic resistant infections. Maybe that all plays into the things we monitor. So why put just this one box of data with different oversight? So I'm all for data management, but just a little bit worried about this switch. Yeah, it's not like the CDC is losing all of its role, right? You know, the CDC does still have a function. They're not having the entire thing taken away. They're not just being dissolved. It's just this particular bit of data management is moving to somewhere else. Yeah, and it's a big bit. And I should say, you know, on the press briefing, Robert Redfield, the director of the CDC, said that he was informed of and approves of this change. So he didn't protest it, you know, in public whatsoever. Well, let's leave it there this week. Uh, I hope you both join me next week for more corona pod so for the time being amy and noah thank you so much thank you thanks ben and we'll hear more from the corona pod team next week coming up in a minute we'll be putting science's flaws under the microscope before that it's time for the research highlights with dan fox many frogs are green maybe not the cutting edge research you were expecting but unlike many animals, they don't all have green skin. Instead, they're green inside their bodies. And now a team of researchers have found out why and how this helps them camouflage themselves so well. Tree frog skin is translucent, showing off their blood, bones and internal tissues that are all rich in the green pigment biliverdin. To understand why, researchers extracted lymph and other fluids from the polka dot tree frog and traced the intense coloration to a previously unknown protein that binds to and transports the green pigment. Studying plants where the tree frogs live, they realised that the colour and brightness of the frog closely matched the vegetation. The biliverdin binding protein allows for fine-tuning of the amphibian's coloration perfecting their camouflage and allowing the creatures to vanish in the forest. Hop on over to Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences of the United States of America to read that research in full. Climate change will swell the highest waves in the Arctic Ocean, endangering coastal areas and infrastructure. Researchers used five climate models to simulate how sea ice melts and wind pattern shifts might affect Arctic waves in the last two decades of the century. They found that in an extreme future scenario in which greenhouse gas emissions continue to soar, 
The maximum height of waves will increase by up to six meters offshore and by up to three meters along coastlines, with the biggest changes in the Arctic Ocean and Greenland Sea, as the loss of sea ice allows winds to build waves higher than ever before. Along the Beaufort Sea's coastline in Alaska and Canada, the annual chance of damaging extreme waves will become four or five times more likely by the year 2100. And these extreme waves aren't just a threat to coastal towns. Infrastructure such as offshore oil platforms are also at risk. Find the rest of that research at the Journal of Geophysical Research, Oceans. Now we're all here because we are big fans of science. Either that, or maybe you didn't check what the podcast was about before you pressed play. But being fans of science, we should be open to looking at its flaws as well as its value. And many of those flaws are highlighted in a new book called Science Fictions: Exposing Fraud, Bias, Negligence, and Hype in Science. I called up the author Stuart Ritchie and asked him why he became interested in this topic. Well, actually, when I was doing a, my PhD, I ran a replication study of like a, a famous controversial paper that had just appeared in a prestigious psychology journal, a paper that apparently showed that undergraduate students at Cornell University have psychic powers that they can sense、uh, the future using extrasensory perception. We ran the same exact experiment again with a larger sample size, and we found that、um, we we couldn't replicate the effect. So what we thought we would do is we would send a replication study to the same journal. But what we were told was that the journal does not accept, under any circumstances, replication studies. And and it turns out that this story kind of stands in for a lot of problems in science, where people are much more interested in new, exciting, flashy findings and less interested in the more boring kind of workaday findings, which is not the sort of、uh, headline-grabbing、uh, stuff, but is much more likely. And the example that you've given of the study of Cornell, I mean, you've made it sound sort of quite ridiculous, but these were esteemed psychologists. They clearly thought that they had found a real result in their data. How, how can you explain that? So there were actually nine experiments in the paper, but I'll just describe one. He showed people two curtains on the computer screen, and they were told there was a picture behind one of them, and they were told click the one that you think there's a picture behind. And it turned out if they put a really boring picture behind, then people get it fifty fifty, as you'd expect. But if you put pornography behind one of the curtains, people are, are statistically significantly more likely to choose that curtain. And there could be all sorts of reasons why they found that a statistical、uh, fluke. There are various different sample sizes in the study, which kind of might imply that what he was doing was collecting data,、um, and then if it wasn't significant, adding more participants until he found a significant result. That's possible. The statistical tests it uses are quite lenient, for for instance, and various other problems. All of which together were not anywhere near anything like we would, we would describe as misconduct or fraud or anything like that. No, nothing like that at all. But they're standard practices that we use in psychology research and lots of other research too, which. Make us more likely to get positive results, but also make it less likely that the results we find are going to be replicated. And so, the kind of things that you're talking about here are situations where, as you say, it's not deliberate misconduct. It's not someone trying to fake the results. It's maybe a result of human psychology itself. I mean, first of all, I think we do have a big problem with deliberate outright fraud, but that's a kind of separate thing from. What happens much more commonly?、Uh, I think there's a much more common, and in some ways much more kind of insidious because it's so widespread, problem of bias towards you know finding exciting, finding statistically significant results in the literature. So、um, if you look at the scientific literature, 
a huge proportion of the findings uh, that are published there are positive results, right? Way more than we would expect. In one study, it's something like over 90%, maybe even more than that. There's also biases within the way that we do the statistics. And this is what, you know, we're talking about with the, the Psychic Powers paper, where there are ways of kind of leaning on, you know, putting your finger on the scale or whatever you want to call it. And the problem is that we can convince ourselves that these are absolutely fine, that it's just you doing the usual kind of scientific exploration of your data. Oh, I'm just checking whether it would work. I'm just trying it again. I'm just doing this rather than what's actually happening, which is that you're massively increasing the chances of finding a false positive result and the pressure that's on us to find significant results and positive results is so much that we can really convince ourselves that any significant result we find is the big thing and it's worth publishing. And the replication crisis in psychology has come particularly to the fore in the past few years. Um, And I wonder if if some scientists would have a tendency to think of this as maybe a a social science problem. And once you get into the perhaps so-called harder sciences, it's much more factual and less open to personal bias. Well, I think the first answer to that is that it's probably better and harder, if you want to call it that, sciences. However, there are lots of reasons to think that the the hard sciences have serious problems with this as well. There are stories of replication failures. Um, there was a survey done for Nature just a few years ago where a, a large proportion of, uh, of chemists, for instance, said that they um, had real difficulty replicating results. In areas like machine learning and computer science, you have real serious problems with people not publishing the code adequately enough for other people to come along and try and reproduce it. So we have all these serious problems, which actually psychology has done quite a lot of soul searching and kind of self-analysis itself. Whereas in other subjects, we don't really know. We've just got these kind of glimmers, these kind of indications, but we don't actually necessarily have, you know, the clear quantitative information, which I find actually, if anything, even scarier. So in medicine, there there have been some sort of specific recent attempts to counter things like publication bias by, for example, pre-registering clinical trials. And in psychology, sort of attempts to go through and try and replicate things. What else has been going on in the last few years since more of this has come to light? Yeah, you're quite right. I should say that the journal that, uh, you know, about 10 years ago refused even to consider publishing our replication study now has on its website we consider replication studies. So something has changed in the past 10 years. There are whole new ways to publish that involve, you know, you submit your basically your introduction and your method section to the journal, that gets reviewed before you collect any data. And the journal agrees to publish your paper, whether or not the results are significant. So that's a really nice new idea that's, that's coming. There's also reforms happening at the level of funding, one of which is quite a radical idea, which is that we should allocate funding for scientific research, essentially via lottery, which might stop scientists having to kind of over-egg the proposals. So there's lots of things that journals can do in these big institutional changes. Do you have any advice for how an individual person can make sure they're doing the best they can? What scientists can do is be as open and transparent as possible with their research. They can use a pre-registration protocol to write down their analysis before they do it. Sharing your data with the world, um, putting it in an online repository, publishing in journals that encourage this kind of stuff. And generally not judging each other on how many publications we've got or in which journals they've published them, but but judging each other on the quality of the research. And I suppose that has to be, to some extent, linked to a reform of how grants and funding is given in order for universities to be able to do that. 
Absolutely. If funders just said, well, you have to put your data online, otherwise we won't give you any money for it, then that would be a massive incentive for scientists to do the right thing. Maybe, you know, funding people to produce data in the first place, to produce resources that other scientists can use is something that should be much more prominent in the way that funders are thinking about um, funding scientific research. Through the history of science, there's also been the philosophy of science and people who've been very interested in fine-tuning this this scientific method over the centuries. And particularly recently, people have become more aware of, of the kind of specific modern problems that we have. How much of a big problem um, for the world and for science do you think these things are t- today in 2020? I think these kind of issues of fraud and bias and negligence and hype and so on are probably worse now than they were a few decades ago because I think the clamour to publish or perish has has gotten worse. I think there's evidence of that. I don't think these problems are completely new, but I do think they're a serious problem, particularly when you look at medical research, which is really badly hampered by this. And then, you know, I hate to I hate to mention it because, you know, it's all anyone can think about, but think about what's happening in the COVID-19 pandemic. We just had two papers retracted, one from the Lancet and one from the New England Journal of Medicine on the drug hydroxychloroquine, essentially because the scientists who were Harvard researchers had not looked at the data. They had relied on this data that had been given to them by this company, Surgisphere, and loads of questions have now been raised about that data. And so the papers had to be retracted. So I think a lot of the problems have just been exacerbated by this situation we're in right now, and I think it's a real danger. That was Stuart Ritchie from King's College London in the UK, and you can find a review of his new book in this week's Nature. We'll pop a link to that in the show notes. Finally on the show, it's time for the weekly briefing chat, where we discuss a couple of articles that have been highlighted in the Nature Briefing. That's Nature's daily pick of science news and stories. Shamini, what's hot in the world of science this week? Well, I'm going to start off with a quick but very relevant shout-out to my friend Amrit, whose Zoom background, you know you can do virtual backgrounds on Zoom, is the CMB, the Cosmic Microwave Background Radiation, which I thought was very clever, as it is the ultimate background. Uh, right okay i mean this is a charming story shamani um how does that relate to a story in the briefing it's about the cmb obviously i'm introducing the cosmic microwave background in a relatable fashion so do you know nick what the cmb is it's basically like the leftovers from the big bang like some sort of radiation just permeates the universe it's the static you see on your tv if that even happens anymore i don't know what how do tvs work these days what's a tv (laughs) who still has a tv what just watch everything on my laptop anyway this is getting really off topic sorry so so yeah close enough the cmb was created back shortly after the big bang and because of that scientists use it to tell us about the origin of the universe and how the universe then is growing and and shaping and evolving. And one of the things scientists are particularly interested in is how fast the universe is expanding. And they put a figure on that, which is called the Hubble constant. So a few years ago, the Planck telescope from the European Space Agency did some measurements on the CMB and came up with an estimated figure for the Hubble constant, which was all very well. But unfortunately, the figure that they came up with, based on the standard model of the universe, didn't match with direct observations of how fast galaxies seem to be moving away from each other in space. So I'm guessing then there's some sort of new insight into the cosmic microwave background radiation and the expansion of the universe? Yeah, we've got new data. There's been data published from the Atacama Cosmology Telescope, which sits in the Chilean desert and and looks out into space. It's also been mapping the CMB with like amazing precision. And a lot of people were sort of going, oh, yeah, this is great. 
because then it will tell us whether like maybe the Planck measurement was totally off and this will be much closer to what's observed. But no, what the Atacama telescope has shown, has given, is actually really, really close to what Planck said, showing that like that initial value is probably pretty accurate, yet doesn't match other observations. So it's sort of helpful and sort of just deepens this whole mystery of how fast the universe is expanding. Right. And are there any theories as to why these two numbers don't match up? Well, the article in Nature that I read didn't put forward any specific theories, but one of the researchers was quoted as saying that their gut feeling is that there's something interesting going on. Mm, Sounds to me like maybe they don't quite know yet, but hopefully we'll find (laughs) out soon. (laughs) For my story this week, I've been looking into Plan S. This is a scheme that's been put together by a lot of high-profile funders that has stipulated that any papers produced from the grants they give out should be published open access, and they push different publishers to allow this. So, for example, Nature has said earlier this year that it will offer researchers a way to publish open access and be compliant with Plan S, but some other high-profile journals, such as Science, have yet to comply with the scheme. But in the latest in this story... The people behind Plan S have announced that it will allow researchers to publish in any journal, even if they haven't complied with the scheme. Well, that doesn't make sense. If the journal is not an open access journal, then how can you you publish in there and say it's, say it's open access? So what they're going to do is they're going to allow researchers to post an accepted version of their article on an online repository as soon as it appears. So they'll have the paper in the journal where they published it, and they'll also have it on this repository too, and then it'll be open for people to see and read. So it's a bit like a, a preprint survey, except you're going to be hosting papers that have gone through the peer review and have been accepted by that journal. But surely the journal, if they're not publishing it open access themselves, wouldn't want anyone else to be publishing it open access either. So that's sort of precisely the problem. At the moment, only 20 publishers will actually allow authors to publish their paper on their site and also as an author-accepted manuscript, at least in the way that is compliant with Plan S, which means that the paper can be adapted and shared widely. So funders are going to basically override this prohibition so they can retain the right to share the manuscript regardless of what any publisher agreements say later on. And this will have legal precedence over any later agreement too. So the journal won't be able to do anything legally about it being published elsewhere. But if the journal didn't want their content being shared, then they could also just not accept Plan S papers, right? Yeah, exactly. So that's sort of where the negotiations are at the moment. And for example, Science have now said it might permit people to publish in this way to allow some of the papers to be Plan S compliant in light of this new proviso that's been added to the agreements. Ah, So it's a sort of a get around that the journals don't need to sort of change their whole system or setup, but we can still have more open access work out there. Thanks, Shamini, for chatting to me. And listeners, we'll put links to everything we discussed in the show notes. And if you're interested in more, but instead as an email delivered daily, then make sure you check out The Nature Briefing. We'll put a link to that in the show notes as well. Before we head off, it's time for me to plug our YouTube channel again, as I always do. So this week, we've got morning, morning coronavirus content, but it's a video on basically six months in to this sort of whole COVID-19 situation, what do we still not know? What questions have scientists still got to answer? And we'll put a link to the video in the show notes, so do check that out. 
That's all for this week. As always, if you want to get in touch with us, then you can reach us on Twitter. We're at Nature Podcast. Or send us an email. We're podcast at nature.com. I'm Nick Al. And I'm Sharmini Bundell. Thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.